I'm aware that I started a bit early, uh, but I, uh, and I'm also aware that my introduction might be just a tiny bit longer than uh, I'd like it, uh, because after all, you want to hear the speaker, not the introductor. But since this is the final event of our religion and violence working group, I just wanted to say a couple of words about that. Anyway, welcome uh, today. The religion and violence group uh, started two years ago uh, from an initiative of the Institute for Collaborative Research and Public Humanities. And I thank both Chris Sacker and Eric Livingston for the support, the constant support we had over these two years. It was sort of a reaction, I guess, on our part as well to September 11, to, see, to, to figure out, conceptualize what's going on out there. We did it on a rather broad and uh, some, sometimes historical uh, basis. We, the four of us, uh, Sarah S. Johnston, Matt Galdish uh, from history, you Erden, uh, and me, we, we had reading groups, as you remember, we had uh, speakers. Uh, in the reading groups and partly in the speakers, we started sort of early history by reading Girard's uh, re uh, Violence of the Sacred or Burkert's uh, Homo Nekaps, but also made uh, sort of our way through to uh, contemporary times, uh, for example, with Krakauer's book on Mormon fundamentalism. Same with uh, the, the papers where we had papers on uh, medieval martyrs on witchcraft, witch trials, but also on Waco and on the aftermath of November 11, of uh, September 11, sorry. What we didn't do were two things. One thing is we never really arrived at the clear-cut answer our questions, and I don't think uh, we don't have we, we do have an answer now. It's, we just realized the problem is terribly tricky, and one thing we realized is also all the models who, that try to reduce religion to something else economy, politics uh, sort of are somewhat too short. Religion turns into a factor with its own dynamics, with its own forces, which we can't just reduce to something else. That was something, I guess, I personally brought out from these uh, meetings. The other thing was that we were terribly academic in what we were doing. After all, 
graduate students and professors uh, reading together, together, talking together. Uh, and how this world of academia is sort of different from the world out there. I realized the other day, it was brought home to me the other day uh, by that, let's say, storm in a teacup uh, which uh, remark of Sarah in the dispatch triggered the remark that Paul's responsible for religious intolerance, which then uh, caused a couple of people to react. One reaction uh, is very interesting, and I cite you that. That's a letter to the editor, uh, where the writer insists that once you know the truth, you can't regard any other system as equal. And then he goes on, but uh, academics don't understand that. So uh, that's maybe where the difference is. And that's one of the reasons why we thought at the end of uh, our workshop, we should have someone who isn't only an academic, someone who has his practical side as well, namely uh, our speaker, Dr. Jean-Nicolas Bitter, who is on the one side a trained theologian. He got his degree from the University of Lausanne in Switzerland. It's a degree in theology in systematic theology, even. On the other side, uh, he is uh, a very practical person out in the field, involved in sorting out the mess religion sometimes makes. He uh, worked as a delegate for the International, International Committee of the Red Cross in Lebanon, in the occupied territories, Pakistan and Afghanistan. Uh, he worked uh, in Moldova, ex-Yugoslavia, Rwanda, Iran, Sri Lanka. It's basically a list of all the hotspots in the last uh, 10 years. He also did research in the States at uh, George Mason University in Virginia. Currently, uh, he is since uh, 2001, he is program officer uh, in the section for civilian peace operations uh, in the Swiss Department for Foreign Affairs. Uh, re uh, interested, responsible for uh, Democratic Republic of Congo and for a new undertaking, which I find fascinating, which uh, is called the Trialogue Project, uh, a, an attempt to start a discussion between the Arab world, the United States, and Europe. It's a partnership between the Swiss Foreign Affairs and the International Institute for Sustained Dialogue in uh, Washington. DC. I run into Dr. Bitter 
in a very academic way. I was doing bibliography for an entry on violence I was writing for the Encyclopedia of Religion. And then I saw this book with the intriguing title Les Dieux Embusqués, the amb ambushed, ambushed Gods, where he sketches both the theoretical approach and the pragmatics, how to deal with all that. And that stirred my interest, and I'm very happy, very glad that he could come to talk to us at this final event, and I welcome him at the Mershon Center. I also thank Mershon for offering whatever uh, we have here today. Uh, thanks, Julie. Uh, thanks, Anne. And uh, thanks to uh, Rick Herman, who has to be away today uh, for uh, this nice, splendid frame we have. Thank you very much, Professor Graf, for these uh, kind words of uh, introduction. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, I'm very pleased to be uh, with you today, especially because I haven't been um, in a university setting for quite some time. And uh, as uh, Professor Graf was saying, I was a uh, visiting fellow in George Mason University, the Institute for Conflict Analysis and Resolution, for two years. And I appreciated very much being there and the type of uh, academic work that was done there, which is quite different from uh, what we do in uh, Switzerland and on the, the continent. Um, I would like to express my, my thanks to uh, Professor Graf for this invitation and uh, my thanks also to the Merchant Center uh, for the hospitality uh, for this talk. Um, as Professor Graf was saying, my work now is in the field. Uh, it is in Central Asia, it is in the Middle East, it has been until recently in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, I am looking into Sri Lanka and Iran as well, and uh, I don't have much time, I haven't had much time in the last years to uh, catch up with uh, readings and academic work. Uh, so I must uh, tell you that I'm not updated with the recent literature uh, on, uh, on the field, and what I would like to propose to you is um, more a reflection which is uh, linked to actual practice and to a model which was developed, uh, which was published uh, in 2003 and uh, it has not been spread out very much. So um, I'm looking forward to see what is the discussion, uh, if there's a, going to be a discussion around, uh, around these uh, theses. In my presentation, uh, I will cover a lot of ground because it is, I'm going to propose to you a model of approach of how to deal with religious dimensions of conflict and uh, to do that uh, a lot of ground has to be covered. Um, I have to, to talk about uh, definition of uh, religion or what can be useful about definition of violence, the relation with power, the relation with security and uh, how to deal with conflict resolution uh, in this context. So there's, there's a lot of uh, things to be said, and um, I choose to uh, go quite quickly across uh, all these things, because anyway, each of, one, each of them would need uh, a lot of discussion, 
uh, and uh, it would not be the place to do this uh, here. Each of the aspects of what is a very multidisciplinary work uh, could be de developed in a course for itself and in even maybe for a seminar, a semester seminar for itself. It includes questions uh, of international relations, of cognitive psychology, um, of sociology, of course religious science, also theology, very much philosophy as well in, into the approaches. So we can't cover this ground um, now but uh, we can pick up questions uh, in, in the discussion if, uh, if you would like. Um, the starting point uh, for this work was practical work uh, on, uh, on the field. As Professor Graf was saying, uh, I was delegate of the International Committee of the Red Cross in Lebanon in the occupied territories under, uh, under the first intifada um, in Afghanistan. Uh, when the Russians had just pulled out, but Najibullah was in power, dealing with the work as a Red Cross delegate with uh, different types of uh, Islamist movements. And uh, the question came, um, how can we uh, deal with these movements? How can we go forward in our work by interacting with the movements and getting our objectives, humanitarian objectives, implemented uh, by negotiation, negotiating with these, uh, these groups, knowing that they have critics on the West, they have critics on humanitarian actions. So what, what is the position, what is the position, how do you do that? Uh, and um, I was mandated by the International of the Committee of the Red Cross to do a study to understand better what is going on uh, with these movements and moreover to find a way of approach, a reading, a model, a frame of analysis that would be useful in practice to interact with the, the movements. So what, is, what was needed? I, I started my research, I had some um, um, I had some advantage doing so, having studied theology and religious science, because I understood that there were in different groups different types of co coherences of discourses, as you find also in the Christian tradition. Groups may use the same words, but they articulate these words in very different ways, which has different consequences as a result. That means that the vocabulary may seem the same in religious groups as well in Islamic groups, but the syntax uh, of it is quite different, and uh, that's, the important, uh, that's the important matter. What I'm telling you now is the result, actually, of, uh, of a research, uh, but at the beginning it had to be found out. So uh, basically, looking into uh, what could be useful, I found anthropological models ethnology, the most interesting uh, approach uh, to, uh, to the problem. The question which was important was to have a model that could be seen as neutral. Neutral in the sense of humanitarian action, that means neutral in the sense of an actor that can be acceptable to the different persons, the different groups you're going to deal with. Um, the models that were present out there you, most of the time are models in which most humanitarian actors, diplomats, uh, and others uh, were thinking that actually religion uh, has to be thought as a pretext for something else. The main real stuff is political. Everybody has political aims, interests, and this is what you have to understand. What comes over there is some kind of a blah blah, uh, which you don't necessarily have to take into account. You, you have to listen to it politely but uh, it doesn't play a role. Uh, 
Actually, my, to my experience is that this approach does not work, as Professor Graf was saying. Uh, this, this approach doesn't work, and you have also a problem in, um, in negotiating and, and dealing with these people because they understand very quickly that you don't take them seriously uh, in the discussion. So one of the elements that's important is how can you negotiate and discuss uh, with a community having a specific uh, living, a specific religion, and taking them seriously, taking their discourse seriously by saying yourself who you are, having a, new, a neutral position towards them. And so um, this was the problem. And uh, what I'm going to very quickly sketch, it, sketch out for you is a little bit the, the results of this. Um, I found that uh, the most um, useful approach for humanitarian action and for conflict resolution work uh, came through a cultural and linguistic model uh, which you can find uh, written by and studied by different authors, but has been worked especially by uh, <coughs> a theologian, Lutheran theologian in, uh, in Yale called George Lindbeck. His problem was uh, he, he has been uh, studying ecumenical dialogue for years and years. He was observer to the Vatican II uh, Council, and his problem was how to understand the fact that doctrines that were in the past conflicting with each other could reconcile without the parties having to back up, without capitulation for one side from one side or another. How is this possible? What what is what is it what is what are the, the models that can explain such a strange dynamic? And so he developed or he he picked up what existed already, a cultural and linguistic <coughs> Uh, model of uh, religion as developed, for example, by Clifford Gertz, and um, worked it out together with a quite traditional rule theory of doctrine. Uh, that means <coughs> uh, I, I will I will uh, I will tell, show you a little bit uh, how this looks like. And this this was the the starting point. His problem was how to think the possibility of doctrinal reconciliation without capitulation, how to take seriously uh, the different confessions of religion, uh, that means to, to take them as a true speech, and how to think seriously the fact that they remain faithful to their positions and to their doctrines and still can reconcile without having capitulation. So this is the, uh, this is the problem in the beginning. So the, the reading of uh, of religion, um, the cultural linguistic model uh, reads like this. It is something you have in your in your handouts. It is um, a religion can be viewed as a kind of cultural and/or linguistic framework or a medium that shapes the entirety of life and thought. It is not primarily an array of beliefs about the true and the good though it may involve these, or a symbolism expressive of basic attitudes, feelings, or sentiments, though those, these may be, will be generated. Rather, it is a, similar to an idiom that makes possible the description of realities, the formulations of beliefs, and the experiencing of inner attitudes, feelings, and sentiments. Like a culture or a language, it is a communal phenomenon 
that shapes the subjectivities of individuals rather than being primarily a manifestation of those subjectivities. It comprises a vocabulary of discursive and non-discursive symbols together with a distinctive <coughs> logic or grammar in terms of which this vocabulary can be meaningfully developed. Um, probably you're familiar with uh, this type of uh, model uh, of religion and um, for me it was quite, <coughs> uh, quite useful. The model has, uh, if, if you think religion in this way, uh, there are a certain number of, uh, of uh, consequences. Is that um, religion seen from outside seem to evolve and to change. And then while changing, you may, uh, you may think that basically what is stable in a religion is something which is beneath the religion, not in the discourse, but maybe in the inner feelings and so on. The mo as the model goes, like a language, it is the religion that absorbs worlds that are changing through history. The, the worlds we are having, the socially constructed worlds, are changing, and religion are absorbing these changing worlds, and themselves moving while staying uh, faithful to, uh, to their own tradition. So, like a language grasping on a, on a reality, uh, the vocabulary may change, but uh, the grammar remains the same. Now, the other aspect, um, the other aspect of the model is the rule theory of doctrine, and the rule theory of doctrine is is that basically uh, truth claims or doctrines are not uh, not to be understood as truth claims or first degree truth claims. They are second order realities. They are rules of the game that tells you. Uh, what's, what is allowed and what you have to rule out but that they, they don't tell you directly what to do, to prescribe directly. This depends on the reality you are facing and how to interpret the rules. So basically uh, compared to an idea of uh, an orthodox religion which is rigid or uh, a propositional idea of truth where the religion will be telling you exactly what is reality Basically, here you have a, a, you have a set of rules uh, in which you are behaving, and the faithfulness uh, will be uh, will be checked and evaluated according to uh, the way you respect the rules of the game. This is interesting as such because uh, it opens us space for flexibility within uh, the interpretation of religion. Why keeping very seriously the, the idea of orthodoxy? Um, <clears throat> so what is interesting also in this, it is that um, it, if you have uh, two worlds that are encountering, uh, meeting each other, two matrices of social construction of reality, you could, uh, you could say, and that the, uh, the rules appear to contradict each other, it doesn't mean that in practice they can't live together because the question is the question depends on what is the context in which it is implemented the fact that uh, in America you drive on the right side of the road and in England on the left side of the road is contradictory in terms of rules but it doesn't it doesn't mean that you cannot live together it doesn't mean that uh, that it is impossible to find ways it just you have to specify what is the, the context in which it has to be implemented 
So uh, some of the uh, characteristics of the of religion in this theory, which are important for understanding, is that um, religions are like uh, a text or a narrative uh, which is uh, inhabited, uh, or like a house for a community. The community inhabits that text. It lives the world through that text and that that narrative. This means also that religions are transparent to the community that live in them. Uh, it is not something that is shown out there. So it's, very, of course, very much uh, like the, uh, the concept of culture. And we could use the word of uh, Tillich to say that religion would be maybe the essential part of a, of a culture. So religion is basically what is really real for the people. Um, in terms of conflict resolution, this model uh, has three elements which are useful. The first element is um, it allows you to respect while describing actually the religion or dealing with the religion and the community you're talking with. It allows you to respect uh, fully the community you're talking with because uh, you, are, you are having a descriptive position. <coughs> Secondly, it allows you to think a space of flexibility for the encounter of two worlds because uh, the, the rules open up space for flexibility. If you take, for example, uh, in terms of flexibility, flexibility the question of, uh, of Sharia in Islam, Islamic law, um, you could talk about it better than I could, uh, but uh, anyway, um, it, you take the, the question of Sharia. We tend to think very often that uh, Sharia is some, uh, something like uh, literal law that you have to apply literally. But uh, basically, Islamic scholars will tell you, this depends, of course, of the school of thought and the, the type of community you have, but for instance, in the Muslim brother uh, tradition is that Sharia is not something that you apply automatically to reality. Basically, what you want to do is to get uh, what is the narrative, the idea, the purpose, which is in the law, and to apply it into a new context. If you take the uh, difficult question of lapidation, for instance, which is under discussion, um, and there was a discussion with, uh, especially with uh, Mr. Tarek Ramadan. You heard about him. He was supposed to come to Notre Dame University. He teaches not very far from where I live, and uh, I know him well. Uh, he, there was a provocative discussion around this question with him, and he answered very well. The idea would be, um, uh, according to Muslim scholars, or uh, many Muslim scholars, is that the conditions for which the lapidation uh, can be implemented are extremely difficult and strict. Uh, it's extremely uh, difficult to, um, to, to arrive to, to the conclusion that it has to be applied. So uh, ulemas, scholars, have understood that basically the aim of this law is preventive. It is to prevent uh, <coughs> adultery, for example. And in contemporary context, uh, these ulemas, for example, those close to Muslim brothers as well, they will tell you that uh, in order to achieve the same goal in our contem contemporary uh, context, you have to use other tools <coughs> than, than that. And so uh, Tarek Ramadan talks about a moratory on the question of uh, lapidation. But it is true also for other doctrines in other religions, in the Christian religion also. There are some doctrines 
that you're not going to say that they are caduc, you don't apply them, and uh, uh, that you have to suppress them. It's just that they don't apply. You don't use them in such a context. Um, <laughs> flexibility is a use, and the first, third use I've pointed to it is the question of, uh, of uh, neutrality. So basically, you approach a religion and a discourse as you would be reading a map of geography to move within a land. And uh, you don't take position or you don't judge, uh, make a judgment on the communal beliefs of the group uh, you're coming to. This doesn't mean that you don't have your own beliefs yourself. It just gives you space to understand what is the logic, what is the grammar, uh, what are the, uh, the possibilities of the community you're working with, and uh, taking this distance, you can find it allows you to think of the possibility to find ways to get out of a of a of a conflict or a, of a difficult situation. Um, what we could, uh, what we should say also, uh, very quickly, uh, as a, is the relation between religion and power. As, as um, matrices of social construction of reality, religion plays a role, a decisive role in, in the shaping of action of a, a community. Uh, in this sense, um, exercising the religion, acting into reali reality, is exercising, exercising power in the sense of Foucault here. And um, when you are, uh, the exercise of power, of course, can be violent. So power has been, uh, Foucault has been defining power also as a way for some people to structure the field of possible actions of others. And so if, if you have, uh, if you have the imposition of one social or matrix of construction of reality uh, onto uh, another group of people, then uh, you have the possibility of a, a violent relation. Um, I have to get a bit quickly on. An aspect which is important, I think, with uh, this view of, um, of religion, it is uh, that religion is, um, is intrinsically linked and very narrowly linked to the question of security uh, of, the, of the community. And uh, so Lindbeck tells us um, what it means uh, in this sense for community. You have it in the handouts. Like language or aids to vision, religions, they enlarge rather than restrict our ability to cope with the world. They are the instruments which enable human beings to interpret it and organize the raw data of social, personal, and intellectual life. They provide the principles of order by which we build a cosmos out of cows <coughs> and thus overcome the sheer confusion and meaninglessness which is the greatest of all threats to human life and dignity. From infancy to old age, human beings have an appetite for models which is no less compelling even though less palpable than the hunger of the starving uh, for food. Sorry, it's missing one word. Um, so the question of um, 
religion is actually what uh, allows uh, people to uh, get orientation in the world. Uh, Polanyi has been talking about uh, a fiduciary system, fiduciary system, and Quine uh, would be talking also uh, to, to relate to the same idea of a web, a web of belief. Um, attacking this kind of fiduciary system, a religion, is something that is felt uh, as, uh, as uh, uh, an extreme violence for the for the community that is receiving it. This is why one could understand probably or the, the reason for the uh, uh, forbidding of uh, colonization in the uh, Islamic uh, Declaration of Human Rights. There is this strong idea. You have this element which is one of the difference between the UN Declaration of Human Rights and the Islamic Declaration is, uh, is the, the forbiddenness of colonization. But in the idea of colonization, you have uh, this, the question of this cultural violence. In the, um, in the notion of, of security and uh, in, the, uh, in the logic of this transparent system, one of, one of the elements uh, in here is um, is the conception of justice. What is justice and how to achieve it in a, in a, in a society? And uh, within, uh, within a religion, there are also included the mechanisms of conflict resolution of the community itself, the way how it, how it can live. Um, and this, of course, this changes uh, from one community to another. So uh, different communities have different mechanisms of conflict resolution. Uh, and this is a very uh, sensitive issue. You, you, can, you can see that, for example, just not taking very uh, remote examples, but if you take the, uh, the judiciary system uh, and the tr penal trial, uh, trial systems and compare between the US and in France, <coughs> you will see that people feel very uncomfortable with the system, with the other system. French people will feel very uncomfortable with the, uh, the penal uh, system in the, in the United States, and vice versa. They are, um, they perceive it as fundamentally dissonant uh, to them. And the question of justice is linked to that. It may seem totally natural to the French community, the French system to the French community, and the American system to the American community, but for one another, they are, they are very dissonant. Um, in terms of conflict resolution, an element which is important is to, to understand that if, if, uh, if there is a conflict between two communities, it's, the fact is it's not just one conflict. Actually, there are two conflicts in the sense that each, co each community constructs or each party constructs uh, the conflict in his own narrative. So you have two constructions. One of the process of conflict resolution is to get to... Uh, uh, two narratives of the conflict that are compatible with each other. If there is a conflict, that the narratives are not compatible with each other. That's one element. But the, the other element of the, uh, of the conflict is that uh, each community or party has its own idea of what should be the mechanism of conflict resolution. And this is something uh, which is linked to the uh, basic intu intuition of what is reality and what is the communal reality. Um, I will get uh, now to very quickly again to pass to uh, 
to, to a, another vignette is uh, the, the question of uh, violence. So you have been working here in, uh, in, the, in this group on, uh, sorry, on religion and violence. And uh, the question is how do you define uh, religion and then how do you define violence? So for the, for the purpose of, of, of my work and for the practical work, I have chosen to uh, construct the problem in the, for religion in the way I show you and to construct the problem of, of violence this way. I found this useful, uh, actually, to define violence. Violence is to be found, according to Emmanuel Levinas, in any action in which one acts as one were alone to act, as if the rest of the universe were only there to receive the action. Violence is consequently also any action which we endure without at every point cooperating in it. Um, so if you, if you take now the definition of, re, uh, of religion and what can happen in the encounter between communities, you can see actually uh, how this encounter can be, uh, can be uh, violent in the imposition of, uh, of one model to another. I'll give, you a, I'll give you some examples now, if you allow me. I'll take an example of, uh, in the case of uh, Waco uh, in, uh, in, in Texas. Um, I will not uh, sketch out the context of Waco. You've been talking about it, and it would take some time. Um, I, I assume you know the context. Basically, uh, the, the idea is, is following. When the uh, BATF... Uh, and first, and the FBI um, constructed uh, their understanding of the case of Waco, uh, they were influenced by uh, the anti-cult discourse, which was a, a common uh, discourse you can find in, uh, in the media. And basically, what was the challenge for them is that they were encountering a group of people who were acting in a way that didn't make sense to them. It was like chaos. So what they needed is to understand uh, what this was about. And the first model that was given to them and was pushed to them by ex-members of the group, uh, also like Mark Brault, was to tell them, that, uh, tell them the anti-cult discourse, that basically there is a guru out there who is for another model, a psychopath. He is taking hostage, mental hostage, of people, and this might, like in Johnston, all into a collective suicide. Now, um, the BATF constructed this narrative, uh, and uh, they messed up the, the intervention, but the intervention in itself, in the first day, uh, was constructed in this way because they had this idea of what was the reality of the cult. Uh, of the sect and uh, the, the history afterwards uh, and the reading of uh, the, the texts of, uh, of the community sh showed us that this was, this was not the reality uh, of the cults but they were, they were imposing a view uh, which was in itself a religious view the anti-cult discourse is also a religious view on, uh, on the sect and the reaction that was to be uh, expected was that, uh, that they encountered uh, a violent reaction uh, as, uh, of a community that is defending, uh, defending itself. Now, um, the, as a consequence, 
the um, the FBI defined actually as a consequence of the uh, the cult discourse. The the FBI defined the situation as a uh, a uh, complex hostage rescue situation, and they set up, they, they have put into place uh, a setup which you use for um, hostage situation, uh, situations because they made the comparison between uh, mental hostage taking and real hostage taking. And the mechanism they have uh, put into place. Actually, we could we could discuss about this in, uh, a bit later, uh, if you would like. But the mechanism they have put into place uh, did not allow uh, the FBI to change its mind and learn about what was the realities that was happening uh, in uh, in Waco. So they have set up a special mechanism which uh, is designed so that the unseen commander. Have, uh, you have the unseen uh, commander, you have the, the, uh, the tactical team, and then you have the negotiators. And here you have the branch Davidians. The, the setup is made that the negotiating, negotiating team negotiates, but doesn't decide. And the unseen commander doesn't negotiate, he decides. The problem is that the only people who have the contact with the branch Davidians were the negotiators. They slowly uh, started to understand that actually what happened within the community was not the model that uh, that, the, that the whole setup was thinking of at first. But they didn't have the ability, they could understand passively uh, that it was not the case, but they could not actively make the case to the unseen commander. And this setup basically is made for that. It is, uh, the idea is, uh, is, is that in a hostage situation, uh, the commander should not be influenced by emotions or whatever, so he's protected this way. And if you have such a setup, this will exactly prevent you to have an understanding and be able to negotiate between worlds. Um, if you take other examples of, uh, of violence, uh, I, I was quoting in, 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 this, in, the, in the handouts, you have a quote by Oscar Mudler, who has been working on uh, metaphor dialogue, and he has been saying that actually uh, cultural violence is probably one of the worst forms of violence you, you can have. That is, what is at stake is the destruction of the community as, uh, as, as such. So this is important. If you take examples of other examples of that, you can take the, the, uh, the problem of uh, what was called Westoxication in the Iranian Revolution, for example. That is also a kind of, of violence. Um, if you t another, another example would be the case of the wearing the veil uh, in France. Uh, for, for women, what happens in terms of the public polity is that the public polity is imposing an interpretation on what it means to carry a veil for women. It can mean, mean many things in reality for women. It can be a political sign, it can be an ethical sign, it can whatever, uh, it can be different things. But the violent aspect is, it, is that uh, there is a ruling that is made on the basis of one interpretation of what is the meaning of carrying a veil. And, and this is this is this is a problem. Um, another example, uh, which is interesting, is um, is in Central Asia. I mean, 
my friend Cameron Dean knows uh, about it. It is uh, the, the question of dealing with the group of Hezb Tahrir, uh, which is uh, an extremist group. Uh, ex ex extremist in its uh, discourse, once the caliphate uh, thinks that all governments are, are, uh, in, in the world actually uh, are, are bad, wants to go back to the, the cali uh, caliphate, but actually the group has never um, uh, implemented violently its actions. It's for different reasons I can't get to in, in the logic of their discourse, there's no, the, it doesn't allow for direct violence. There are lots of reasons for that. Uh, and I have a study here with me for, for those who are interested in that. What is violent and interesting is that uh, I was discussing with the uh, Center of Strategic Studies in Uzbekistan about the question of why do you put these guys in jail? I mean, they don't, you know, they don't commit violent acts. Okay, one of the reasons is that uh, criticizing uh, the calling for uh, the end of the constitution is an offense according to the, you know, the constitution of Uzbekistan. But that's not the biggest reason. Uh, the biggest reason in the discussion is what they call ideological security. So to the minds, uh, to the minds and you find it in Uzbekistan and Tajikistan as well, and some in Kyrgyzstan as well, uh, and, and people are being trained in former Soviet Union is, is the following, is that uh, there's a necessary link between a discourse that is understood in a certain way and the fact that it has to come to action. Uh, this means that uh, there is a kind of uh, unique or uh, a rationality which is, uh, w which is understood and supposed that if you call for the over overthrow of the government, this means that you necessarily are going to do that in action at one point of time. So if you say it, then you have, if somebody says it, you have to stop that people, these people there at that moment. And this is really a conception of how uh, uh, speech relates to action. <laughs> there can be many other models of speeches relating differently to, to action, but imposing uh, in imposing this understanding of the relationship between speech and action is, uh, is in itself you know, a social construction of reality and it has clearly violent reactions. In the case of Hezbo Tahir, the people go to prison and they, they, it doesn't provoke directly violence because they have the, the idea of martyrdom and they think that their cause will be advanced by martyrdom, but in other case it could trigger direct violence in return. Um, so I will quickly wrap up and to see what, just to give a few hints of uh, what can be done in uh, what can be done in, in practice. Um, so in practice, what is important is to take note that uh, in a situation you can be uh, confronted to the fact that you have two different uh, social constructions of reality. Now, if there is a conflict, what is important is that there is participation in the negotiation, full participation of, of both sides to the negotiation, which means that uh, the parties have to, to be able to come uh, in the process with their own cultural and religious resources. And when you come to an outcome, a satisfactory outcome for, for all, uh, all the parties, it doesn't mean that the parties have the same understanding what this uh, outcome means they can give different meanings to the practical outcome, what it is. It doesn't matter, that's fine. The thing is you have to get to, together in a process to an agreement on a practical, uh, tangible outcome uh, which is possible 
for for both uh, both worlds. And uh, I can give you an example uh, in uh, that that happened in '97 in the hospitals in Kabul. The problem that was spread uh, that was told in the media was that actually in the main hospital in Kabul in '97, women were not allowed to come, were not anymore allowed to come. And it was seen, at least in Europe, of course, as a disgrace. That means that the Taliban were not giving the same rights to women because they could not be treated in hospitals. What happened is that the delegate of the International Committee of the Red Cross at that time went to see the Minister uh, of, um, of Health of the Taliban. They went to the different medical, uh, they, they toured together the, difficult, the different medical facilities in the capital where they had uh, clinics and the main uh, hospital as well. And um, they realized and they agreed that actually in the clinics where women were allowed to go, they were not the same facilities as in the main hospital, so they couldn't get the same treatment. For the Taliban, they understood that the problem was following. It was uh, facilities in the hospital uh, had to be used in priority for the combatants coming back from the field. And their problem was, uh, not, uh, was the problem that uh, men and women had to be separated. Uh, there was a need of the rule of separation. And so what, uh, what was concluded, what was negotiated uh, with the International Committee of the Red Cross was basically to build a wall in the, uh, uh, in the hospital and to separate both female personnel and female patients and male personnel and male patients and so that all could have the same uh, treatment. So the problem was not a question of inequality in treatment. The problem in the world was a question of separation. Uh, and so this is just a, just an example, which is not a perfect one. And there were other problems, of course, with the Taliban and women. It's just one example to see how a negotiation can uh, uh, can be uh, conducted. Um, the same thing can it can go with uh, what are the negotiating? What are the possibilities of political cohabitation with Islamic group? Uh, Islamist groups in terms of democracy, for example, what does it mean? What does it mean for them? And uh, this is this is something uh, that can be elaborated uh, according to the to the same logic. Uh, this, which we are doing in some of the dialogue projects, by the way. So I will I will stop here, and uh, I think uh, I would be happy uh, happy to leave space for for the discussion. I know that I've been touching on on many things. Apologize for. Uh, for being a bit sketchy uh, in, uh, in the elements uh, uh, and also for, for, for the English and especially this, um, this academic uh, twist on it. I didn't have the occasion to, to practice that type of language <laughs> for quite some time, so thank you very much. Ireland or how it's between Israel and the Palestinians, two examples. 
what degree are they driven by religion? What degree is religion just a coincidental division between the two sides? And how do we know which factors are most significant? I think you have to take uh, the, the the context case by case first. Uh, and uh, in terms of method, I think you should examine, you know, what could be the religious background and, and try to get it out of the way if, if it is, if there is any. But I'll give you an example. Um, in the case of um, Israeli-Palestine or Israeli-Arab conflict, um, one of the uh, obstacles to conflict transformation is certainly the fear of what would happen if uh, Islamic movements uh, came to power in the Palestinian Authority. Because <coughs> then many people would think, uh, if there are Islamists there, we are lost. I mean, it's finished. You can't live. That's from uh, the dilemma of Algeria, which was Islamists came to power and the generals cut off the powers and the West burned. At that time, we're thinking that, well, anyway, yeah, we can't trust these guys, or we're not sure about it. Actually, Europe was not totally happy with this, and they were thinking a few years later that they wouldn't have let the generals do that. Now we have an example of Turkey that is a different setting that in which thinking is advancing. This is one aspect, so religion plays a role here uh, in, uh, in the the question of the Islamic movement. Another question is, um, in the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict, is, is the idea that people have, rightly or wrongly, that uh, Israel is uh, looking for a, a greater Israel and expanding. And at least in terms of the signs that are out there, you could see that this fear is substantiated uh, in a way. And uh, this means that uh, the reason for this expansion is, is not uh, unlinked to religious uh, symbolism. One of the uh, another element to look at that is to is um, is the position of the uh, of Hamas uh, actually uh, towards uh, negotiation. Hamas, uh, Hamas uh, recently said, and that was the position of Sheikh Yassin before he was uh, he, he was assassinated, that they would agree on uh, a negotiation with Israel on the basis of the 67 border, and if uh, the question of return of refugees was really seriously taken into account, that would be to that. That element will, uh, uh, would be valid to have a truce, not peace, a truce. Um, and then, of course, people are going to say, yeah, but why a truce? We want peace, we don't want a truce. <laughs> uh, how long would, will that last? Truth, uh, this truce can be uh, understood as, uh, you know, in, uh, on the background of uh, Islamic history in which uh, there were truces made by Islamic armies, very long truces, with uh, non-Muslims, which were holding. But that was a measure of saying, what, what does peace mean, basically? You have to analyze what it means, and there was setting to, to, to do peace. So, but when asked what would be the conditions for, for peace, uh, 
then the Hamas would say, uh, saying, people in Hamas were saying, is that the condition, the condition would be that uh, Israel becomes really a real uh, secular state. Um, and this secular state, meaning that it is not known to be, there will not be any more Jewish state, there will not be uh, these differences in the treatment uh, of population in Israel, according, uh, according, uh, according to Hamas. And so you see in the negotiation process, these, these are all elements which are into religion. Iraq, you can tell it. Uh, it, play, it plays a role. There are different factors, of course. The, the question is not, is it totally religious or totally something else? The thing is that uh, it is intertwined. <laughs> Uh, and it, it is influenced. For example, if you take the question of land, for example, between Palestinians and Israelis, the, in the negotiation process, is that the land does not mean the same thing for Israelis and for Palestinians. Um, very roughly, you could say that the question of life for Israelis is more important for land. But if for a Palestinian, he sees his land taken away and uh, the 400 years uh, old uh, olive trees of his grand-grandfathers being ripped away, this is more important than his life. Uh, so you have these elements uh, where you see actually the um, mutual influence of values and interests. Yes. Um, the quote from Levinas is very interesting and one way to think about what that conception of violence implies is that actors on two sides are being autistic and not really understanding the perspective of the other side and taking their side into account. And that's, I think, quite true in many respects. But certain kinds of violence, organized violence, um, warfare, long-running religious conflict. Um, there's a sense also in which that kind of violence is a collective enterprise between the two sides working together to sustain the violence. Each side needing the other's enmity and violence to sustain its own conception of self and its own violence. So in a sense, war becomes, or violence becomes a participatory activity between the two sides. And I'm wondering if, if that conception is, do you see that as radically different than the, the Levinasian perspective? And how would my death um, shape our understanding of conflict resolution? Because then the problem is no longer to simply understand the other, it's to understand the self in relation to the other, in a sense, and how we're all collectively participating in this together. Yeah, it's a broad subject. Personally, I would take it this way, is that uh, we know that in conflict there is the development of, um, of a culture of con a conflict and a system of conflict in which that sometimes uh, the parties rely on each other. Um, but uh, the, their understanding of the system and the logic of the system is not necessarily the mechanism of working of the system is not necessarily the same on one side and the other side. So if you want to break the system, uh, in a sense, you have to understand what is the logic on each side of uh, maintaining uh, this, uh, this symbiotic uh, relationship. Um, I wonder about applying this model to everyday conflicts between populations as opposed to these negotiations between elites. Um, I think this is a very attractive approach. It echoes some things in American legal scholarship, Kat Sun's 
uh, talking about imperfectly theorized agreements as a way to manage uh, law in a plural society, and then you agree on the outcome, but not on the reasons behind the outcome. But when you, but the definitions of religion here seem a little bit Protestant, that is, they seem a bit intellectual, focused on belief and doctrine rather than on everyday practice, so that they seem to fit more comfortably, perhaps, with Islamism than, say, with Mediterranean popular Catholicism. And I'm wondering what sort of experience with this approach you have in conflicts that are over shared space, for example, things like the competition for ritual space in Jerusalem or the Ayodhya Mosque or places where it's practices that are coming into conflict so that the agreement on outcomes has to deal with these sort of material um, occupations and space and time and the other. Yes, thank you. Um, in, in my understanding, actually, uh, the, the model of approach is, 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 is not discursive in the narrow sense. It's discursive in the broader sense. That means uh, behavior as such is understood as a discourse, uh, whether it is dance uh, or whether it is sharing space. And so that's the anthropological approach to it. So, um, of course, you have, we have here in this setting to talk about it, so we, we use the, uh, the verbal discourse for that. Um, but uh, the tools of approach is, is, is not, uh, not that intellectual uh, approach. So it, uh, to my, uh, my, this helps me to understand and to make sense uh, in, in areas where things are not going to be uh, verbalized. Anyway, most, most of this, this, what we're saying on the second level of reflection uh, is, is not going to be said in the working process. It, it will not appear. It's something that is there to guide the action. Uh, it seems like Lindbeck and Tillich and others broaden the definition of religion to, as said, the making order out of cosmos out of chaos and, and <coughs> defining meaning and, and your faith and uh, all the things that Tillich talks about as well, the existential anxiety. And I'm wondering how that um, affects this concept of religion as a passive mirror kind of socializable change that uh, I understood. I can be with some thing where uh, Lindex talks about uh, religion being a, a mirror of societal change and then reforming itself with society as it changes. If religion itself is uh, is broad enough to encompass all of all of human uh, thought, for example, a there can be such a thing as uh, a secular fundamentalism, as Rabbi Michael says, where you, you have a every you have you may order out of chaos without a religious label, but it's still a religious practice because it is that practice of order, um, then it seems like the, the violence is, is quite tangible with a secular fundamentalist, a religious fundamentalist, where um, what, what I'm getting at is essentially is, uh, is religion a passive mirror in the context of religion in a broad sense as, as making order out of, out of chaos? Um, and if not, then how does that um, inform cross-functional dialogue? 
Um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not sure I get uh, well your question okay. because I can't relate with the uh, the uh, metaphor of mirror. Okay. Uh, I guess the, what I understood Lindbeck is saying is that religion is, religion is, a, is a passive entity on societal change. Society changes and religion redefines itself. And I'm wondering if religion is a broad No, it's, it's the reverse. Okay, that was my confusion. It's the reverse. It is the the narrative of religion is something that stays, and then it happens through other means that society and the world changes. You have a world which is the Constantinian world, the ancient Greek world. You have the uh, the the world of the Middle Ages. You have the world of the Enlightenment, and each time a same religion is absorbing these changing world and appears to change. It doesn't. Uh, it's. Uh, that's 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 the idea, and the question is here for uh, is relevant, for example, for um, the discussion between what we say between Islam and modernity. Uh, it, you know, is, is is Islam going to be able to cope with modernity? And sometimes we think that modernity is going to take over Islam. But what happens in the different religions in the world is that these different religions have taken time until they found and they did the work to absorb this modernity. In Japan, Japan there, are pl there is a plurality of modernities which, according to Lindbeck, would be the result of the absorption <coughs> of, of these modernities by different matrices. I'm, I'm very impressed with and sympathetic to the, the perspective of the negotiation and in complex revolution. So I'm, I'm impressed by your work. I'm, I'm surprised in that context that you find that the Lebanian quotation helpful because it seems to me that, that in, in letting us there's an ontological dimension of violence. Uh, I would say any action which we endure without at every point cooperating in suggests that being born is a, is a violent action. Right? It's one that we endure without at every point cooperating in. We don't choose to be in the world. And, and that Levinas, I think. Um, but if you have that kind of ontological element of violence, then what is meant by conflict resolution becomes a very complicated thing. And my, my concrete example is when you talked about the, the decision around the hijab in, in France, the arguments that I've heard were that, that um, young women were being forced into by their brothers, fathers, family into the wearing of the hijab, um, and that this was the, the state trying to carve out a small space uh, before the age of 18, uh, when uh, where those women would be free of that kind of violence. So in that sense, if we follow your interpretation, the state has a kind of violence, but it's reacting to a violence which is Perceives being exercised on on a certain population as well. So, um, is that a situation that calls for conflict resolution, or is that a situation that is a, a, a mediation, a third party, or is it a situation where you have very different conceptions of, of justice and rights and, and, and so forth? It's a very wide, broad question. Thank you, uh, and complex. Um, 
I wouldn't get into the Levinas and ontological discussion that would carry us <laughs> uh, very far. Um, on the question of the veil in, in France, I would, uh, I would, I would say that um, uh, the better solution in these cases is that uh, decisions are taken as locally as possible. Uh, and the problem in France is that you have a pyramid of decisions taken for everybody the same, which basically works in France. People do accept that, but it wouldn't be... The accounts I heard were that, that principals of schools were, had room to negotiate and that young women were given you know, several occasions, uh, several talking to, and it wasn't, it wasn't as if there was a clear line drawn and on day one, no more. But maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, there were different cases, of course, and I think you're right that in some cases uh, young women were forced to do so. The problem is uh, that uh, there is the idea that there's only one reason uh, or, or a few reasons why the young women are, are wearing the veil, for example, being forced to, or because they have a political uh, opinion. That's the more political one, and which, which probably made the bill pass, but uh, in reality, it's uh, it's it's certainly quite different, uh, and so uh, it is it is better to find a pragmatical solution as close to the local reality uh, as possible. This is a system we have in Switzerland. Actually, the relation between state and church and with religion uh, with religion is is done in a very local level, as pragmatical as possible. Because basically the reason for that, I think, is that religion is something is, that is lived by the community. And so what is acceptable for a, for a community has to be seen on the level of the community and not on a wider and a higher level. Uh, otherwise you're going to get in trouble because you will have to find rules that uh, are the same for different communities. And so the... Communities are scaled. There are different scales of community. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My neighborhood. <laughs> well, Walter Burke describes the modern predicament as uh, between nihilism and linguistics. So I applaud your, your model because I mean, it does uh, give us Westerners a good model for approaching pre modern societies as well as more religious societies confronted with modernity. The problem, the intrinsic problem, seems to be that many believers are unwilling to accept a constructivist or a linguistic model of their own worldview. And if I may suggest an analog for uh, your map on the board, I would, I would put in place of TT, the Office of the Vice President and the Pentagon, the OSC, the White House, the negotiators, the State Department, and the branch comedians, I'm afraid, the rest of the world. <laughs> Um, actually, in terms of the model, what is interesting is that um, the, uh, uh, as such, it seems that the model can be accepted, uh, especially, for example, in the religions of the book, uh, as Lindbeck has been working out in, in Islam, in, um, in Christianity, and Judaism. Because uh, we're talking about the internal coherence, and so the, let's say the tools, the lo intellectual logistics, can be accepted for uh, explaining out 
the the religion. Every religion has its own uh, philosophy or intellectual tools that it that it draws upon. And it seems that it, it can be used. There are maybe some other religions where it's more difficult to use this type of tools uh, to get by. People were saying, and that was wondering whether that would be the case in Buddhism. Maybe it would be difficult. Whereas Sri Lankan Buddhism, for example, is a very scholarly. Uh, Buddhism and it's uh, I probably would guess that it, that it works uh, that it works well um. I am fascinated by the, the, the choice of the, the metaphor of the vision as a tool for you as you do your work and I'm looking for a little more insight into how you do the job uh, going back to The way I use the, the model is, is following it. Um, I don't I don't use it directly. The idea is that uh, in, in conflict resolution is to help the, the parties um, to find themselves a solution. But uh, if you under if you have this understanding uh, of uh, encounter between worlds and and the dynamics, then you're going to direct the operation in different ways. You'll bring in different experts, uh, different space. You will ask different personalities to come in. You will, for example, realize that uh, in some setting, uh, if you don't have a religious authority, but not the official one, the one that the people listen to, uh, if, if he's not on board, and if he has not integrated uh, the element, or he's, if he hasn't in his way given a blessing, uh, to what is happening, then, then it's not going to happen. Uh, so um, there's it. It is a, it is a, a model to guide the action in the, in, in the work to understand and and to and to guide it and to behave also toward uh, towards the fact. It's a question of approaching also to get closer to 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 using the model. It is, for example, when you have discussions about what is secularity uh, and then when you get like in, uh, in Tajikistan there is the discussion about uh, uh, about uh, secularity what does it mean a secular state Kalamanudin could, could tell us uh, more about it in the National Reconciliation Commission uh, there were discussions around it but still people don't um, people don't agree uh, on what it means secularity and so basically uh, um, the model will help me here uh, when you have a tension and a problem between neo-communists, for example, and Islamic revival movements in Tajikistan. Uh, the, 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 the model helps me uh, in, in this way is that uh, 
I understand uh, secularity as um, as something which is not uh, pre-existent, which is not an a priori, uh, which is not something which is beyond or beyond religion in a sense, but it is a space which is neutral. It is a space which is acceptable by different religious entities in which they can back up or legitimate with different values. Uh, and they, w they will have their own reasons to uh, legitimate that space. And you have, the, you, have it, uh, you have different discourses for that. For example, the Muslim Brotherhood, they would be saying that um, the polity and the, and the work of politics has to be in a neutral space because uh, God doesn't have anything to say, uh, every, something to say on every, uh, every move uh, the government takes. Uh, and uh, that the values will, will be giving a guiding principle in a sense. That's the whole discussion about Iraq and the different parties now. And what, what role they want a religion uh, or Islam to have in the government. And there's quite a lot of misunderstandings. Uh, so there are different models for that uh, in, in terms of how the different parties articulate the secularity. But uh, if, if you want to work in there, then it's, it's very important, to me, it's important to have a clearer idea of what you mean by secularity uh, in, in a context where you have different worlds. And here the model applies directly, because you want to know what does it mean, the Velayat uh, the uh, of, of the Iranians, and you have different takes on it. But you have to, you have to be pretty clear uh, about what are the options, what are the real options. Uh, and the real options are much broader than we usually think. Uh, in terms of the articulation between the values and the, uh, and the politics. Um, and uh, so this, to, for me, practically speaking, this, this model is extremely useful for that. Sorry, a greater? In a sense, I see a greater onus on you to be a scholar of, of thoroughly versed in both sides than I apologize. I don't understand the meaning of the word onus. Responsibility. Maybe that was a fitting summary. And I mean, I understand that if if someone wants to continue this discussion, but the picture is around at the control as long as you want to have them, but maybe we should end the official part and thank the hardy souls anyway. Certain people to be more open to negotiation. negotiation.